Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the History Voyager. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I wanted to talk for a while today about how it was that the United States even got into World War I because as late as 1916, the United States was essentially basically a country that did not want to be involved in foreign wars. It's as though the U.S. had taken very seriously George Washington's advice not to involve ourselves in foreign entanglements. How exactly did we go from being a country that was generally neutral on the world stage, at least when it comes to military, to very much involved in World War I in the first place? Woodrow Wilson set the tone for 20th century America. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson came to power largely on a platform of keeping the United States out of European affairs. Woodrow Wilson was a southern-born and bred um, person of essentially planter aristocracy who became the president at Princeton University in New Jersey. Woodrow Wilson essentially was incredibly racist. He was very much this uh, type of a person who was very sympathetic to the Klan, even going as far as screening Birth of a Nation in the White House. This was a marked departure from at least paying lip service to, you know, not exactly unifying the races, but certainly sort of trying to paper over the wounds left by the Civil War. Woodrow Wilson, in his heart of hearts, some people really believe, did not believe that he should keep America out of the war. He really saw the white race as essentially all for one and one for all. And this is even a departure, even from what a lot of Europeans would have thought, where, you know, Europeans in that period would have thought that Italians were a separate race from, say, the English or even the Scottish or the Germans, you know, all these people being separate races. Woodrow Wilson essentially saw all white people as being the same race and that we should all sort of, um, I guess, one for all and all for one kind of thing. And Woodrow Wilson saw... America as this essentially beacon of democracy. In fact, Woodrow Wilson was the reason that the 20th century, I guess they call them the elective wars of choice, happened. So like the Vietnam War, to some extent the Korean War, um, you know, and both wars in Iraq are what we call wars of choice. Woodrow Wilson laid the intellectual groundwork for that. And that's something that, you know, we should think about, is that before Woodrow Wilson, you know, it wasn't really thought of by even the Founding Fathers or really any of the past presidents that it was our job to export democracy across the world. And Woodrow Wilson saw America essentially as like we needed to export democracy around the world. Within one year of his presidency, Woodrow Wilson had created the Federal Reserve, the Internal Revenue Service, as well as a brand new innovation for the time, straight party line voting in Congress. 
Wilson did not ride to power through unanimous consent. Hardly anything of the sort. The only section of the country that Wilson carried was the South. Wilson represented a unification of the Wall Street bankers and the Southern aristocratic planner class, which had been reasserting itself in the South for some time. Either that, or they had gradually morphed into commercial or other industrial backers. One of the oddest things about American history is that in reality, a lot of your planner class was really just as northern as it was southern, because, and this is something to think about, right? Like, your planner class viewed a plantation as an investment, so it wasn't exactly a, a way of life, so to say, although they would spin it as that later. It's important to note that the Democratic Party at that point in Congress was dominated by Southern partisans who viewed themselves as sectional voters. In other words, the South and the Democrat Party would vote as a unit, similar to the way the Parliament in England would vote as a unit. This was a new thing in the country at the time. It was also highly disruptive to the way things had been done in Washington up to that point. But, you know, people didn't realize that until it was already underway. If this rings any bells with you, it sure does with me. It's as though, you know, the thing we're dealing with today is similar to the thing they're dealing with in 1918. Again, and I keep saying this, the disease is natural, the pandemic is man-made. This is something that I've truly come to believe in doing this podcast. And I hope, I really hope, that I am illustrating this effectively to my audience. Though Woodrow Wilson was very popular in the South, opinion on him was divided pretty much everywhere else in the nation. The thing about Woodrow Wilson was his cabinet was a unification of Wall Street bankers and Southern planter class people. His cabinet was assembled by Edward M. House, who was a colonel in the U.S. military. House's father had been a Southern planter who'd immigrated from England. Before Woodrow Wilson, America did not have a special relationship with Britain. You might say that the beginning of the American special relationship with Britain essentially began in Woodrow Wilson's mind. Woodrow Wilson was a lifelong fan of what was at that time the parliamentary system in Britain, the system by which aristocratic planters and businessmen essentially rose to power through almost unanimous voting in Parliament and exacted their will on the British people. One of Woodrow Wilson's lifelong goals was to eliminate the tariff system from which America derived most of its tax revenue. The tariff system, he thought, was unfair in that it ended up taxing the American upper crust because it was the upper crust who could afford to import their goods as opposed to getting natively created goods. Wilson found many allies in the Southern-controlled Democrat elites in Congress because they themselves were from planter stock, and they wanted to return to the glory days 
of cheaper tariffs or zero tariffs where they could import higher quality goods from Europe. It's also well worth saying that the Republican base was essentially the northern industrial workers. And so they wanted to essentially cobble the Republican Party. When one studies this period, it's useful to think of the two parties as essentially polar opposite from today. Indeed, as one studies history, one begins to understand that essentially nothing is new. Well, things are new, but I guess you could say history sort of rhymes or holds itself up as though it was in a mirror funhouse universe. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson ran a re-election campaign based entirely on the mantra that he kept America out of the raging battles in Europe. All the while behind the scenes, he was engineering a way to get into the war, specifically because Woodrow Wilson loved the English, especially in the British Isles, and he also, and you saw this in reflected in the Treaty of Versailles, he hated the Germans. Woodrow Wilson had an absolute loathing hatred of German people. This, more than anything else, was probably why America entered the side of the Allies. Because the thing you have to remember is, most of the American people at this point were either Irish or German in stock. What this meant was that most of the American people would have been opposed to the English just by their very nature of their ethnic origin. So Woodrow Wilson had to essentially work behind the scenes to sell the American people on going to war for the, for the English. How did he do that? He leaned on the rural classes the very people who got him elected in the first place through a, a rather crafty bit of electioneering and essentially propaganda. In 2020, it's very hard for most people to comprehend the importance of the Ku Klux Klan in the lives of most rural Americans. It's also very, very hard, I would imagine, for most people alive today to, to see that the rural America was actually very much the part of America where most of the people in this country lived. And this was to what was to set up essentially the partisan divide of the day, which was you had the rural English and Scottish peasant class going up against the new urban classes of German and Irish people in the north and again the the distrust and you might even say hatred uh, between the two groups was something that basically carried over whole cloth from the Civil War which was still very much in the minds of most people remember when I said earlier that Woodrow Wilson screened the birth of the nation in the White House during his presidency that was a very influential moment in this country's history because it signified a real break from what had been essentially the bipartisan, essentially let's paper over the world, you know, the Civil War sort of an idea.
Woodrow Wilson did not want to paper over the Civil War at all. He was very much a racist in his private life. But that's not nearly as important as because Woodrow Wilson screened the birth of a nation in the White House in a time when mass media itself was basically brand new, he, he essentially opened the avenue for people in the North who were the stock of Irish and even the very German folks that he reviled to you know, be exposed to the Klan. This opened up Klan membership in the North, in the North and the Midwest in a massive way. And it also, remember there were small Northern and Midwestern towns, it also opened up the Klan into the civil life of the small towns in the Northeast and the Midwest in a serious way. Now, you need to understand that Wilson would later capitalize on that as a way to drum up support for going to war for the aid of Britain. Because again, Woodrow Wilson was essentially an Anglophile in every sense of the word. And this was at a time when most Americans were not, essentially were not uniformly pro-English or pro-British most Americans still remembered the day that their ancestors had fought the English for their independence. And also, there were a good number of urban Americans that weren't English at all. That were, In fact, if you lived in a city and were what you'd call today white, you were more likely to be German or Irish than English. And both the Germans and the Irish hated the English going all the way back to Europe. From 1917 to 1919, the Ku Klux Klan gained over 100,000 new members, the majority of this being in northern states and cities. One of the interesting things about the Klan and its history is that when you look at the, I guess, the on-the-ground or lived experience of people that were in places where the Klan was, especially if they were white, essentially only if they were white, really, they, they talk about the Klan as though it was essentially an arm of government or an auxiliary to the police force. I distinctly remember reading one oral history where a person in a small town in Georgia talked about the Klan was essentially this organization that would essentially, you know, enforce good behavior on the citizens of this town. And what he found interesting as an adult, far removed from these proceedings, was in his town, they didn't have any immigrants or really any African Americans at all for the Klan to, to necessarily dominate. So essentially, these people... Basically, like, if, if they thought somebody was drinking too much, they would harass them. Or if they thought somebody was gambling too much, they would harass them, or things like that. So it's important to understand that, the, you know, there was a segment of society that simply, you know, never saw, the, the, like, the, the cross burnings or 
the lynchings or things like that. And it's important to understand in 2020 how new, you know, mass media was and the role of mass media in basically in disseminating a, a wider consensus about racial equality, etc. And that a lot of people, even without the Klan, wouldn't have been open to racial equality or, you know, anything that most people today in America take totally for granted. Now, why am I bringing this up in a podcast about the Spanish flu? Because the Klan was essential in getting people signed up to go fight in World War I. The Klan helped Woodrow Wilson, whether they admitted it to it or not, whether they wanted to do it or not, as, as to show the average white American that they were, in fact, white, that they were not Polish, that they were not Czech, that they were not, you know, Irish or German, that they were, in fact, white, and that the nation, the nation that white people needed to protect was Britain. This was an argument that the Klan basically put forth to, to the, the white populace of small and medium and large towns all over the country. And historians are, in fact, in 2020, are, in fact, very much divided as to whether or not Woodrow Wilson purposely did this. That is, did Woodrow Wilson actually explicitly wish the Klan to get bigger? Did Woodrow Wilson actually explicitly aid the Klan in getting bigger? Did Woodrow Wilson actually task the Klan to go on recruitment drives to get people to sign up to go to war to fight for Britain and more specifically England? Because Woodrow Wilson's love of, of Great Britain centered around the upper crust in England. And Woodrow Wilson saw the United States as the city on the hill that was going to come defend the upper crust in England from the German people whom he reviled. Woodrow Wilson was no idiot. Woodrow Wilson understood that America was a nation founded by political dissent. Therefore, the average American person saw themselves as something separated from the federal government. They saw themselves as something separated from the cause of the federal government. Woodrow Wilson also knew that he could not simply rely on the Ku Klux Klan, whether or not he intended to rely on them or not. Woodrow Wilson decided to turn to the ex-progressive journalist George Creel to help share his message of how, why America should go to Britain, specifically England, to help fight World War One. George Creel had taken up the progressive causes of an income tax system as well as women's suffrage in Missouri. Seven days after the U.S. officially entered World War One, Woodrow Wilson put him in charge of basically propaganda, although it wasn't referred to as such at the time. 
What was Wilson's goal with entering into the war with Germany? Remember, Germany was not a backwater. Germany was, in fact, a large industrial powerhouse. It always had been. The German-speaking region of Europe had always been, going back to Roman times, in fact, this massive industrial power base. So what exactly was his goal? Well, some historians have, have pondered that perhaps he was trying to take over Germany on behalf of the American banking interest. That could have been part of the deal. I, I honestly don't know. You can get pretty far into the weeds with what sound today to be conspiracy theories, even, you know, in what you call mainline history or, you know, respected history. Okay, that is history written by tenured college professors and such. And that's essentially, they have to play by the rules. They have to color within the lines, as you, if you will. You know, so, you know, they're not out to be provocative. Now, what do I think it was? Well, if you look at what he wanted to do, he wanted to create what he even called a one-world government. And he wanted this one-world government to be essentially ruled through the League of Nations, where he saw the League of Nations as kind of the arbiters of, of conflicts all over the world. Now, when we say world, we're obviously meaning somewhere like Europe. Okay, so he thought that English-speaking democracies, as which he saw America and essentially Britain or England, were these special places that were imbued with the powers of um, reason and such and were uniquely situated through some sort of shared cultural heritage to, to rule over the world peaceably. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, the Senate did not go, by, go for this. The, the Senate famously uh, vetoed the Treaty of Versailles, and many, many historians have, have said, well, the Treaty of Versailles with its draconian measures against Germany and its, you know, essentially its, um, the way it set up the League of Nations without the United States, who was, let's be honest, a major winner in World War One. It set up the League of Nations without the United Nation, without the United States being present, which basically hobbled the League of Nations from the start. So these factors led to World War II. Now, I'm not here to, de to debate that right now in a podcast about the Spanish flu, but what I am here to tell you is why exactly we got into this war in the first place, which was because of the ideology of one man, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson deserves a podcast episode all on his own, maybe a multi-part episode to talk about his biography because in delving into Woodrow Wilson, I've discovered that actually a lot of what he wanted to do essentially became the blueprint for the U.S. foreign policy for much of the 20th, 20th century. 
beyond World War II. On May 24th, Secretary of War Newton Baker essentially said that everybody between the ages of 21 and 30 had to work in a few essential industries or fight in World War I. That is, of course, every man. Now, what's interesting about this is that we need to understand one of the reasons World War I is not really talked about in this country as much or as glowingly as World War II is, is that the, I guess, the mood towards the war was not anywhere close to unanimous, nearly at all. If you'll recall back in the first podcast in this series, I talked about a family story of mine, which is that my grandmother on my mother's side had no recollection of Southerners fighting in the war really in large numbers at all. The reason for that was that the South was very anti-World War I. And so, in fact, was the Industrial North. A lot of the draft people, drafted folks, basically came from the Midwest. And I know, I'm not saying that Kansas, you know, that Kansas was the only place or that the Midwest was the only place. But what I am saying is that by far the popular, uh, the states that had the most popularity with the war were the Midwest. Now, the other thing was how the, the regiments were organized. The belief with the military at the time was that they wanted these men to have some familiarity with each other. They would draft whole clubs, whole organs of society together. They, they would draft baseball teams. They would draft football teams. They would draft basically high school rowing classes together. Once you graduated from high school and you were in a rowing a team or a crew team, they would draft this team together. And this was done at the time because they wanted to have a cohesive unit on the battlefield. And one of the reasons they wanted to do this is because, remember, we were still, as a country, we were still licking our wounds from the Civil War. And there was a very, very deep division even then. And that becomes really apparent when you look at, say, the, the class of people, the cohort of people even in charge in the country, a lot of their fathers were had either been on the Confederate or on the Union side during the Civil War. And you can see even in private correspondence where the husbands are talking to the wives about good-natured or less-than-good-natured uh, slaps given to the wives talking about, you know, well, this guy is, he's all right for a, a northerner or a southerner and so on. And if that's going on in what you call polite society, think about what they're talking about at the, at the, the town level or the county level and so on. And remember that a lot of these people, like I said, came from rural, rural backgrounds which would mean that a lot of them essentially, you know, they, they essentially didn't travel very far 
from where they were born. So they weren't really trying to rekindle hostilities between the North and the South. Now, what this means for after World War I is that you had entire towns in like Pennsylvania or somewhere in the Midwest where basically every able-bodied man of the town prior to World War I was essentially either dead or injured. So, you know, that would lead into some serious societal problems later. But, you know, as with everything in the world, they weren't worried about later, they were worried about now. When you think about how people deal with World War I in this country today, the thing you notice is that we don't really talk about it. It's, it's sort of this war that, that we've deliberately decided to paper over. It's like we, we acknowledge that it happened, we acknowledge that we fought in it, we acknowledge that the Spanish flu took place, but we don't really talk about our, you know, our involvement in World War I. And I think, I really believe that one of the reasons for that is because World War I was far and away not a popular war with huge sections of this country. There were large sections uh, of the country that were basically where there were Italian and German and Irish people, none of whom felt any affinity at all for the English. There were also a lot of um, people in the South that had no desire to go fight for the federal government because they were still licking their wounds from the Civil War. And it's interesting that, you know, there were a lot of basic, the government would come down on some basically ethnic papers like ethnic German papers or, or you know, Italian or Polish papers during uh, World War One. And they did so as a way uh, to, you know, eliminate dissent in the war. And that's what makes later wars, specifically Vietnam, so remarkable. That it was essentially, the protests were essentially allowed to play out in the media in a way that they weren't in World War I. And that's a, a very unique, not unique, but a very kind of, interesting and, and different way to handle it. I guess it, like the, the project of running a country, the project of essentially being a country on the world stage, that's a very unique way to, to handle that, if you will. The other thing I, I want to say about this podcast before I close it out is, or this episode anyway, before I close it out, is it's really hard to find a modern historian that sees um, Woodrow Wilson in a positive light. And to some extent, actually to a huge extent, I totally see that. But there's another way in which I think Woodrow Wilson is, is a window into, into how society would have seen, you know, the, basically the Spanish flu. Woodrow Wilson literally saw the British people, the English people, as a separate race from the German people. 
Woodrow Wilson was no idiot. Woodrow Wilson was not stupid. He was a very smart man. He was very well educated. I'm, I'm serious here. If he thought that, other people thought it. If he thought that, there were doctors that thought it, serious doctors that thought it. You'll remember that there, there were doctors in the Navy who thought, who were astounded that you could have people of different extractions that, that could catch the flu from each other. This is where we learned that. This is where we learned that, that you could be German and you could be English and you could be the same race and you could catch the same diseases. People always say that, you know, society didn't change because of the 1918 flu. It did. We're living in those changes. We just don't happen to see them. But it totally did. And one of the ways you can tell that is by examining what Woodrow Wilson thought about the world and realized that he was very typical for his day. And if he was thinking that as a plugged-in intellectual, what was the average small-town resident in Iowa thinking? World War I allowed America to essentially heal from the Civil War. What I mean by that is it allowed people to focus on something other than old hatreds and basically, for lack of a better term, American tribalism. That sounds funny to say, but the more you think about it, the more really it's kind of true. But it also kind of forced an ideology to the forefront. It forced people to, to think seriously about the biological nature of humanity and how people essentially were the same under all the culture and whatever else. And that sounds funny to, to say to a modern audience. It sounds funny to say as a podcaster. But it's true. And, and you see that an awful lot in the, the run-up to World War I, but also during World War I, and also kind of the, the shock, even by medical professionals, about who could exactly succumb to the Spanish flu. As always, thank you for listening to my podcast. This has been the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. The music you hear is courtesy of one Andrew Vickery. Thank you and have a nice day. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.